Hey everyone, back again. Okay, episode four. We're covering chapters three and four from Martin Heidegger's Being in Time. Or three and four from part one of Martin Heidegger's Being in Time. We have to, I have to specify this. Uh, yeah. But I want, before I start, I want to read a comment my uh, friend of mine left who's Heidegger expert um, that I think he offers a really important qualification. So shout out to Josh uh, for giving us this this really important or a few important qualifications to keep in our minds as we understand Heidegger here. So this is what Josh says. And if you want to read it, you can go to, go to part one. It's in the comments. I've pinned it. I've pinned it. But I want to read it because I think it's important. So Heidegger is not trying to solve the problem of being. He is only trying to reawaken the question of being. And questioning is not just a simple seeking, but a restrained seeking that almost resembles critique. The point of his inquiry, then, is not to grasp after an answer, since the grasping would be predetermined by the understanding of being that we always already operate under. The point is rather to withhold the understanding and to release being from our predetermined forms of understanding. This is perhaps the most important distinction that needs to be made when trying to understand the book, if you get this, then it becomes clear that he is not doing metaphysics. He's actually trying to overcome metaphysics. He is definitely not trying to escape language. Language is the house of being. That's why he positions discourse as one of the basic structural moments of care. We aren't there yet, but you'll, you'll know what that means. This also makes clear that the book is not incomplete because it didn't go where, the projected, where he projected at the beginning, but that he was successful in withholding his own understanding. So yeah, important qualification from the person who I know that knows the most about Heidegger. So yeah, if you uh, want to go reply to Josh or ask for more info, you can reply to his comment on part one. But yeah, all right, let's jump into this. We got a lot to cover. So chapter three from part one of Being in Time, titled The Worldliness of the World. So the world is not reducible to things in it, like physical things in it, or even to nature. Nature is just one being among others, something that we've kind of imbued a certain status to, with, to, on, whatever. Now there's a trap here, though, we have to be mindful of. If we pursue an understanding of the world by first looking at the state of being in the world as an ontological condition of Dasein, right? Because Dasein is in the world. There is no world, but only subjective worlds, right? Because if we are saying that Dasein is only for itself in the world, how do we actually make sense of a unified world or, or many unified worlds comprised of many individuals, many Daseins? How do we then, or how are we then able to say that and not just be like, Oh, well, you know, it's totally subjective. Every Dasein has a different experience in the world. That's it. Yada, yada. It doesn't matter. How do we avoid that? Or, or, and this is, you know, this is, some, this is the wizardry at work here. Is this not a trap at all? In fact, we must dissociate world from its uncritical labeling as all-encompassing universal. So we can think of the world in, in a few different ways. We can think of it as the totality or the totalizing space of beings present within the world. We can also think of it as worlds can then be specific 
like a world of the mathematician, the world of the baker's world, the world of the car mechanic, whatever, different worlds. It could also mean the public world or our surrounding world where we meet, we discuss, town hall, you know, the university quad, the agora, agora, the atrium, whatever. So world is one instance of a broader existential concept of worldliness, the structural totality of particular worlds. So like we said last time, we aren't like looking out in the world at, at all of the random events and, and stuff that goes on and trying to find like, you know, the evidence of being there. We are looking at the fundamental ontology of being that he repeatedly says we don't actually arrive at or that is always to come. So instead of looking at just individual worlds, he wants to find the structural totality of particular worlds. What is, where does worldliness come from? The possibility of worlds to emerge. So our cl closest world of everyday Dasein is the surrounding world. I think we can understand that simply like, wherever you are right now, look around you. I mean, there might be, uh, if you're in uh, your home, wherever you live, if you're in your car, you've crafted that space to like meet whatever it is the way you want it to be, which is shaped by, you know, even other worlds, other having been shaped by's, or your house, or whatever. Or maybe even more precisely, your immediate like community, family, whatever. So we can grasp this world, like the surrounding world we're immediately engaging with, by performing an ontological interpretation of those beings initially encountered within the surroundings. So we must be sure not to conflate spatiality here with worldliness, right? We, we aren't talking about like, taking up space in the world. That's the Kant thing, that Heidegger doesn't want to do that. Heidegger thinks that worlds are constructed by bringing space in, by de-distancing. So must be sure not to conflate spatiality with worldliness. A world needs not extend over space, to extend over space. So to interpret a world means to first look at its immediate elements, environmentality. Secondly, to contrast it from Descartes' ontology of world, and thirdly, to explicate the aroundness of the surrounding world and the spatiality of Dasein. So where do we begin here? You know, we got all this, right? Let me repeat it. It means to look at the immediate elements of the world, environmentality, to take it, you know, not to conflate it with Descartes' ontology of world, which we'll explain, and thirdly, to explicate the aroundedness, or the aroundness, of the surrounding world and the spatiality of Dasein. So where do we begin? Well, he has a pretty easy answer. He says we engage with useful things, the things that help us make worlds, insofar as they are the expressions or they are the tools by which we demonstrate and exemplify our capacity for care, to work upon a world, to be driven by a desire to be with others in creating world. So a useful thing belongs to an entire constellation of useful things. There's, there is no the one useful thing that exists out there. If we pick up a pencil in a classroom, the pencil appears among many other useful things, like the room itself, like the classroom itself, like the eraser, the desk, the 
chair, the chalkboard, whatever. All of these things form part of this world. So if we use a hammer, for example, we become familiar with it as useful. This experience with the hammer is called circumspection. It is to be contrasted with just thinking about or looking at the hammer, which is non-circumspect, like a hammer just sitting on the you know, table or whatever. If I actually contemplate the hammer in, in its acting, in its ability to do stuff in the world, I am performing, performing circumspection. Now, both of these are examples of seeing the hammer. They are ways of seeing the hammer. One of them just sees it as, it, as it's there as like a physical objective presence in the world. Another one sees its attachment to its possible usefulness in doing things in the world. So they are both cases, cases of seeing or experiencing the hammer, but in different ways. As we use the hammer, we become familiar with its handiness. What is it doing? Like, what job is it performing for us? What is useful about it? But the hammer or any tool is not the end of the line, right? It's doing something. It is used to make something that is also useful. Also useful. Use the hammer to nail the wood together to make a house, make a shed, make anything for a purpose, for something in the world. So what the, what, why, why, why are we talking about this? Why does it matter? We're talking about hammers? Who cares? Stupid hammers? Well, if we accept what he says about usefulness, then things are made and used according to an expected norm to some extent in which the object will make sense, the thing that we are making. We don't make things that just that don't have some resonance with the world. And even on like a vulgar level, I'll just call it a vulgar level, like between different like countries, we have very different uses of tools in the operations that they actually fulfill or they perform in the things that they make in the world. Very different things uh, happen. We have different architecture, we have different uses of tools, we have everything else. So here the world, as he writes, here the world is encountered in which wearers and users live, a world which is at the same time our world, the public world, and the surrounding world of nature. And it is in these human creations that the natural world is found for Heidegger. So a covered railroad platform takes bad weather into account, for example, right? You know, you're standing on the covered railroad or a railroad or you're, you're at the station and it's covered right to keep keep away the bad weather so objects are made in accordance with the natural world like what possibilities are present in that world to necessitate the way that we respond to it how we will respond to it like i live in california now and places are built to be shockproof because the ground moves in this place with earthquakes and stuff so this will determine how we will exist in that world, how we will use our tools, things that we will make with those tools. That's not the only determining factor, right? He's not saying we're just determined by nature, uh, the natural world, and, and that's it. He's saying that's, that's just one like way in which the natural world is figured into this. So he says that handiness is the ontological categorical definition of being, of beings, as they are in themselves. 
But still, we haven't said what a world is, but let me just unpack this sentence. Handiness is the ontological categorical definition of beings as they are in themselves. In that, so far he has been clear that the a priori about Dasein has been all those things I mentioned, like it can be authentic, inauthentic, it is for itself, it is, it is real, you know, but it also exists in a world. This is, this is a priori. Like, there's no Dasein that doesn't exist in a world. And we must then, we haven't really defined what a world is yet, but it must be then that every single thing in that world that does something to perform an action in that world, any single one of those instances is a demonstration of what a thing is in itself in acting upon that world. Not because there's like a true use of a hammer but in the very hammer's handiness that is attached to that world in which the hammer is being used reveals its ontological structure as handy or its ontological categorical definition of being as they are in itself. As it is in itself is its handiness. Now this is, you know, this is so different from Kant. Kant's like the thing in itself we will never know. We will never know what exists beneath perception or like you know we perceive the chair we all have different perceptions of the chair what is the chair to itself we'll never know that's what Kant says we'll never know but Heidegger's like actually ontologically if we actually consider Dasein and its attachment to world its a priori attachment to world we know that the ontological structure the ontological categorical definition of beings in the world refers to what they are in themselves, in their handiness. So when someone creates something that approximates a style or a norm or, or you know, the, whatever the public perceives, they are expressing their inner worldly being, like their being in the world. They're existing among others in that world. So let's return to the hammer. If a hammer breaks, and this I think is the crux of the entire point of the hammer if the hammer breaks suddenly it becomes conspicuous when we were using the hammer before you never think of it right like your internet connection you know you never think of like your internet connection or anything like that you're just if you if you happen to have access to the internet um it's something you just kind of assume goes on it's just like a tool you use to connect to the world uh but when it goes out Suddenly you fall into this panic, right? Suddenly you're totally, you're hyper aware of your internet. Like with the hammer. If you know you're often using hammers, you're using hammers for everything and the hammer breaks, it's like, wow, I am disallowed to perform that duty of being in the world or performing that thing that would have approximated my existence in the world, been a sign of it. So when the hammer breaks, it loses its handiness and now only becomes an object to behold, something we can just look at. We look at it as bro broken too. We see it's two parts, no longer the, the handle is not attached. Like we can't use, we can't use it anymore. If a tool breaks, we are shown the obstinacy of what we were trying to take care of, how badly we actually wanted to do it and how important it was for us to actually have an attachment to that world. Or if we realize a thing is no longer useful, we are made aware of its obtrusiveness. 
suddenly the hammer in its being broken is like a barrier to our being able to exist in the world. And the internet example is kind of like, it's so like obviously gets this point across that it actually turns out to be a bad example because you make the association that like worldliness is is tantamount to communication itself, like being able to communicate online, which is not what he's saying. I think that could be, you know, this part of it. But he's talking about something much more, dare I say, ephemeral, something that's like an attachment to a world, not in like a literal communication, but something that's about being able to engage in that world, as he says, as action and intent in terms of care, which you can't do if you don't have the tools to allow you to do it. So when a tool's becoming conspicuous, if a tool breaks and suddenly we're like hyper aware of it, we're like, you thing, why don't you work? anymore the internet goes out we are we're you know it is stubborn to us it's obstinate it is obtrusive suddenly it's like a nuisance so in a tools becoming conspicuous being revealed to us it is revealed although only fleetingly what we see is the image of the world that we have no longer access to it is an image of the world being disappointed in our failure to care for it. And in his words, and this is where it comes to a head, in this moment where the hammer breaks, we see for the first time what the missing thing was at hand for. What was it doing? And at hand with? Who are we? And what were we acting upon? And why was it so important to us? What were those things that we took for granted that kind of fell beneath the immediate comprehension or immediate recognition and that we were working upon and that what what becomes revealed when we can no longer do that thing so we are here open to the unseen world that goes unnoticed by just using the object or looking at it in the creation of a world things lose their attachment to the world and appear to be merely present neutrally the hammer is just like a thing there that really bothers me even the thing i was working on becomes then it becomes like a nuisance you're making a shed and you want everything to go right right you just want it to work you're making a boat i don't know and you just want it to work suddenly you lose that thing you're trying to do you're trying to use to make a boat and now even the boat itself is annoying because now you no longer will have time to do like the other thing you wanted to do Right, because now you have to worry about the, you got to deal with the broken hammer. It takes time to finally get to the boat to, to accomplish the task that you're trying to do. And in that moment, suddenly, we can become aware of why we're doing it in the first place. What, according to what rules are we doing this? What world are we trying to enter in doing this? Or trying to contribute to, to care for? So for things of worldliness to remain unseen, the world does not announce itself. So in its all-encompassing way, it enjoys transparency. When the hammer's working right, we don't think about it, right? The world just doesn't appear to us. We're just moving through it so smoothly, seamlessly, which is a very interesting thing, like, as being humans. Like, if we were just these evolutionary creatures that, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for any kind of, like, spirituality or religion here, but if we are just these creatures that just, like, respond to our environment, it seems like really weird that we could have this kind of attachment to things that are totally constructed, 
and how they are necessary for us to create this world. So he says that this is the constitution of the phenomenal structure of the being in itself of these beings. So world precedes our being in the world, our inner worldliness. So world precedes inner worldly disposition that is expressed in world making. Therefore, world is something in which Dasein as a being always already was. That is, this is just revealed in Dasein's easy attachment to, adaptation to, the world, existing in it, wanting to contribute to it, to care for it. As Heidegger writes, taking care of things always already occurs on the basis of familiarity with the world. And in its familiarity with the world, Dasein, he continues, can lose itself and become numbed. So it's not only that we, when, we are, when things are working well, we lose sight of the hammer, we lose sight of the world. We almost fall into a kind of rhythmic pattern when we are existing in the world that you know, we, we are so adapted to, and we lose a sense of that individuality of Dasein itself. We become numbed, in his words, which isn't bad. Like, he's not saying this is a bad thing. This is absolutely necessary. So he then applies this to the logic of signs and references. So a sign, like a signal light on a car, finds its ontological character in its serviceability, in its usefulness in the world. It does something for us. So for him, signs are, in his words, useful things which explicitly bring a totality of useful things to circumspection so that the worldly character of what is at hand makes itself known at the same time. The turn signal tells us that someone is turning, which tells us about like the usefulness of a car. What world is it like part of and going to in the act of communicating that to us? Signs, though, are only a subset of what he calls referentiality or reference. So a hammer is a reference to serviceability, but it is not a sign of serviceability. As reference, the sign indicates and situates a use, and so therefore does not reveal the ontological structure of the sign as a useful thing. So even though the sign is not useful in itself, it is just pointing towards something that is useful, pointing towards a possible direction that is important, it serves an instrumental function in totality of useful things and worldliness. It is very important for us to have these signs. It is not performing the useful action itself, but is a sign toward that useful thing. And then he says that relation stands above both uh, sign and referentiality as it is the unifying principle. It unifies sign and reference. It relates them to make it possible that a sign can point to something that is useful. The sign points to, uh, like the sign itself is not useful, like in the car signal. It tells us to be wary because the person in front of us is about to turn left. And if we aren't mindful of that, we're going to crash into the car. Like who cares about the sign itself? It's just blinking light. Doesn't, it's not doing something in the world. But it is pointing out that there is this other tool doing something. The car is that useful thing, I think. Even though I don't think he says that, I think that we can interpret it uh, like that. Well, my, my memory is, maybe he does say that. Whatever, don't, don't get hung up on it. It's easy, I, I'm, the, I'm the decider. Don't, don't get hung up on that. 
So a sign orients and directs us. As such, it relates to and communicates with Dasein, which is always somehow directed and underway. So signs are useful things which explicitly bring a totality of useful things to circumspection that make us aware of them, so that the worldly character of what is at hand makes itself known at the same time. So relationality, that thing above, I'm just using the term above just to you know make it easy to understand. Um, relationality connects, is a kind of glue that holds useful things together in this world that can unify the sign, the turn signal, and the car that is going to turn and that we might hit if we are not paying attention to it. So as opposed to when a useful object like a hammer becomes conspicuous, which is bad, like we don't like that to happen, signs live and die by their conspicuousness. The sign is meant to be seen. Like the sign is always something that we have to be always mindful of when it's not there and then it'll come on. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is point. This is making something conspicuous. It is making the the tool conspicuous. It is revealing it to us and the possible harms it'll inflict on us if we don't respect its boundaries. Apparently, this is a somewhat new phenomenon because for apparently, for um, people of millennia ago who use signs like uh, the fetishism and uh, and magic, which is who knows what the hell he's talking about here, the sign has not yet become free from that for which it is a sign. So he says that at this point, it's only in like a kind of developed human semiotic system in which signs can be separated from actual tools or things that they are pointing to. Because here he doesn't think that magic is legit, right? He's saying, you know, he's just saying that this is just a sign for something else. Freud says something says similar stuff, right? The sign is just the the fetish object is just something that points, ultimately to, uh, is is actually tantamount with, the psychological distress that all these people live under. So the sign was then, synonymous with the tool or the thing that it was, you know, the pointing to. Because, you know, magic wasn't actually a tool because, you know, it's thinking that these people are just, they didn't have any real science or logic, of course. Uh, of course, he's going to think that way. So here we get a new term in this formula, and that is relevance. That refers to a thing's being together with something else. This resonates with the what for. Like, why do you do things? What, what for? Of an object. A hammer is to build a house, for example, for shelter as one possible way to think about it. This is a thing's relevance. But if we go far enough down this line of reasoning, the what for eventually leads to a what for which no longer has relevance, relevance, which itself is not a being of the kind of being of things at hand within a world, but is a being whose being is defined as being in the world to whose constitution of being worldliness itself belongs. So here, we are not, which is, I'll, let me explain, give me a minute, but here, he's suggesting that we don't just do things for a purpose, a what for. Instead, we must think of it as the for the sake of which something is performed. This refers to those beings whose being is defined in their being in the world. 
the you know in the way that we've understood the world now being in not in terms of spatiality but being in in terms of like being a part of being part of that community and so this is like a more comprehensive way of understanding the ontological structure and ontological usefulness of tools themselves in their use in their attachment to world in their ability to connect Dasein and world or i mean they're always already connected right Dasein and world but as like a demonstration of that to exemplify that connection there are a way by which we also still demonstrate that remnant of Dasein's in for itself its individuality we use tools to make things for us it allows the painter to make a work of art that has yet never been made before for example this is this is how we account for how newness can come into the world. So relevance is like a pre-ontological condition for a thing's handiness. A thing must be handy because there is the possibility to make connections between things. To be able to have these types of relationships and that you make the thing according to what you've been taught and how to make it. And it will then be made in accordance with that world. But if coming forth of any being or a thing is a product is comes from Dasein, what is the relationship between Dasein and relevance, right? Because as we've been saying this, like there's a Dasein that works upon the world with the tool that has or that reveals this fundamental relevance here. How do we then understand this possibility of like individual um, self-expression of Dasein and the creation of world? Well, he writes that or and, and, and the, its attachment to relevance. He writes that that within which Dasein understands itself beforehand in the mode of self-reference is that for which it lets being be encountered beforehand. As that for which one lets being be encountered in the kind of being of relevance, the wherein of self-referential understanding is the phenomenon of world. So we are already pre-programmed with the ability to form world, we are guided by that impulse. It is what allows us to be in the world. So we have some relations here between world and Dasein. Dasein and itself, relevance and Dasein, and then any other ones you can think of from everything we've said so far here. So Dasein's knowledge of these relations is its understanding. Its attachment to world, its attachment to relevance, it, it knows this deep down. Dasein's understanding grasps the chain. In his words, the for the sake of which, or the, the, the for the sake of which signifies an in order to. The in order to signifies a what for. The what for signifies a what in of letting something be relevant. He calls this relational totality of signification significance. This is the significance here. This is kind of the, dare I say, the ontological ground of the what for. The significance of these types of connections. Only by understanding significance does Zazain ontically permit discovery of beings within the kind of being of relevance. In a world that allows things to be known in their in itself we are encountering things in themselves and others other daseins in themselves in this communal world or in our communal world as such dasein can reveal significations and even be i kind of boldly suggest 
birth worlds and language that allows this kind of unity. So here he wants to resist a simple formalization of the system into a mathematical formula. So we might detour and consider how this approach differs from Descartes. Finally, we've arrived here from Descartes' view of the world from last episode. We're not from last episode. Yeah, we, we introduced that here, whatever. But we have to separate this from Descartes' view. So to do this, we have to focus on three key ideas from Descartes. That is the world as extension. In other words, the world as being in space. The foundations of this ontological determination that the world is in space. And the interpretation of this Cartesian view of the world. So he's going to talk about Descartes' understanding of the world as being in space, how he arrived at that point, and how people have taken this up. So Descartes bases much thought on the assumed separation of body and mind, as I think many of us know. So of the body, you know, he's like, we doubt everything, we doubt our bodies, can't doubt our mind. Of the body, he suggests its being of being is its substance, that is its extension in space. That's all it is. Like, it's just matter, right? Just in space. So all changes in extension, that is size, shape, are modes of this extension and do not signal an ontological transformation of the thing if they change because, uh, because the thing will still be extended in space. So that fundamental ontological ground for Descartes is just that we exist in space. That is the determination of body. It's being out there, whereas mind doesn't follow, is, is not subject to space in that way. So substance for Descartes is a being of such renown because it relies on nothing. It just is. Like we, we know things are, it's just out there, right? They take up space. They exist in space. But this is as far as he and those before him were willing and perhaps able to go with this understanding, with this idea. Descartes just says, oh, well, we can't fully grasp its being, right? Like any prior thing before its being in space but can approximate it through its qualities. So we end up confusing the ontic and the ontological for Descartes. He says that, you know, things can change. Their size and shape is kind of their modes, modalities, but ultimately they just remain, they, they assume the same essence. So perhaps this is why Descartes turned to math, because it is assumed that math brings us closer to unchanging truths of things, truths of things in their being. It is revealed then that Descartes is stuck to seeing being as constant objective presence, and so he is ill-equipped to grasp the being of beings, or what a being is for, or how when something shows itself in sensation, it presents itself in its own kind of being. And he, he's not able to consider any of that because he just reduces it all to substance. That is what is all that matters for Descartes. There's nothing more than that. Now, in the face of this, Heidegger is not interested in doing away with Descartes entirely. Like, of course, he's indebted to Descartes. He thinks that Descartes offered a lot. Rather, he wants to take it a step further, to consider the world as phenomenon and as belonging to a totality of useful things that we actually do in the world, instead of this abstract reduction of all things to just, like, substance or existing in space. This means bringing uh, Descartes' discussion of the world to our own analysis of handiness and worldliness. But before then, 
Heidegger is going to ask more questions about the history of philosophy. He asks, why was phenomenon of world repeatedly passed over, ignored? Why does concern for interworldly beings, beings in the world, eclipse and take place of concern for phenomenon of world itself and the creation of world? Why are these beings initially found in quote-unquote nature? Why is value cited and appealed to to understand the ontology of the world? So Heidegger acknowledges that world is spatial. Obviously, we exist in space. But we should, shouldn't fall into the uh, kind of the closet trap that we mentioned earlier, where we exist in, inside of something spatially. We instead, we have to reframe space as conditioned by worldliness of world itself and not the other way around. It is by the very existence of a certain kind of world in which we can even imagine a thing existing in like a closet, in space, in a room, in then a house. What conditions are there in this world for that to be made possible? So we can do that in three steps. We have to look at the spatiality of interworldly things, the spatiality of being in the world, and the spatiality of Dasein and space itself. And eventually he's going to get into the temporality of time. First here spatiality of space. So first, the spatiality of interworldly things. So th me and you, whoever's listening, you know, talking to you, uh, Sarah, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't freak you out. Whatever. If there's a Sarah listening, you know, there's a space between us. I don't know where you are, but like physical space. So let's start there. The spatiality of interworldly things. We have to engage with spatiality of things phenomenologically, identifying its connection with the structures of being. So this means looking at how we've already talked about space when we spoke of handy or handy things or handiness, those things near us and in our world. Their nearness, though, has nothing to do with physical distance, how close they are to us physically. In other words, Space means nothing unless tied to a meaning and a world. We can't just talk of a universal space or spatiality. We have to talk about space in worlds, how space is framed in worlds. So a place of value or that contains useful things is a region and we will orient ourselves to it in space. So Dasein is attuned to these types of regions. We organize things around certain spaces, around certain things, certain monuments that we've created. Our distance from them will determine like where we will live and how we exist in the world. So he says that so the surrounding world does not arrange itself in a previously given space, but rather its specific worldliness articulates in its significance the relevant context of a totality of places that have been circumspectly assigned. We must not just bracket off the world when we talk about space. So here, into number two, the spatiality of being in the world. Of this, he says, as we know, Dasein is not spatial, even though it is the condition of possibility of things in space, is the possibility of spatiality. Dasein de-distances for Heidegger. It's not about some neutral objective, like how far things are apart. It brings things together. The creation of worlds is when space 
is taken out of the equation. Distance as we might otherwise understand it doesn't really exist because it is always filtered through something, through time, through meters or feet, kilometers, whatever. A smooth long journey might seem shorter than a rough short journey. So we can see how perception and worldliness trouble the idea of there being like objective space just out there. That which is near us is that which we can forget is there in our world, like the hammer, for example. We don't see the hammer because it's right next to us. Suddenly the hammer and its distance from us, even though it hasn't moved anywhere, becomes apparent when it breaks, for example. So our glasses are further from us than the thing we are looking at. I Like, I wear glasses. I never think about my glasses. I think about the things that are, like, are far away from me that are form part of my world that I, like, try to bring into and engage with, for example. So Dasein brings something near, but is then responsible for that thing's almost disappearing, and it's becoming, like, totally custom to us. So Dasein is spatial insofar as it is being in the world, but it is also, it operates in the, it dabbles in de-distancing. It de-distances. Being in de-distances. It also directs, directs us as directionality. An orienting towards regions, towards people and worlds. This is why signs are useful. So now we have to consider the third thing. That is uh, the spatiality of Dasein and space itself. So it is only because Dasein is spatial as directing and de-distancing can we perceive space at all. Things appear in regions. They are observed and organized through heedful circumspection, like seeing them, engaging with them as they, the tools they perform. So as he writes, space is not in the subject that is in us, as Kant might say, nor does that subject observe the world as if it were in space. To experience space is really to encounter space as a region in the actual encountering of things at hand in the surrounding world. So like when Kant writes about uh, rights of space, he is ironically committed to an idea of there being pure space out there. I say it's ironic because he performs an entire critique of pure reason that's almost detached from the world, or he thinks that pure reason is detached from the world. So as a qualification, Dasein is to be distinguished from handiness, objective presence, and reality. These are things unlike Dasein, but that Dasein engages with. Dasein is not in itself handy. It is not in itself objective. If I can say there's anything, it is in itself at all. It is not objective presence, and it is not reality. So space can only be uh, kind of really understood by engaging with the world, not by erasing it as Kant does. And that puts us here into chapter four. Being in the world as being with and being a self, the they. And I've already kind of already hinted at what this the they is or what they is. So Dasein is taken over by its world when it enters the world. It's never just on its own, just like, peace, everyone, I'm doing my own thing. So Heidegger asks, who is it? that Dasein is in every dayness. Here we must separate being with from Dasein with to identify the subject of every dayness, that is, the they. When Dasein enters a world, what is it approximating? What does it become like? 
What norms are there? This is the they. What language does it speak, right? Dasein is a being which I myself am. Its being is in each case mine. And so this is the self, myself or subject. This self is what remains as other factors about us and our lives change. We need to be careful though and just adopt these terms uncritically. Does the everyday I actually reflect Dasein? Or is this something different? Is the they that I become, the language I take on, the customs I take on, is that synonymous with my Dasein itself? Or is there something more to it? An immediate issue is that if I am Dasein, and Dasein is I, then everyone has Dasein which is they, and so it is therefore not itself. Because if I am my own Dasein, and that's it, everyone has their own, then what unites, we have to negate the negation here, what unites us is by our very, like, refusal to embrace each other's Daseins, and so we are just caught in, like, Dasein being a kind of theyness itself. It is always outside of us. Dasein isn't itself if it is in many eyes, if many people have this, like, embraced individual Dasein that's totally their own. And I am not I if I am my own Dasein. What we must do instead is unite all beings with their common Dasein to make, in Heidegger's words, Dasein with of the nearest everydayness phenomenally visible. It's attachment to world, existing in the world, working upon world. So we will analyze Dasein by looking at what is present, what and who exists. So far we have focused on objects, essentially, to make our investigation easy. Other people, though, share the world that is always already from the outset my own. So unlike the hammer, other people aren't just objectively present, nor at hand. They are like the very Dasein which frees them, like myself. So we are talking about something very different, and we can't treat any other human as something handy for us. That is, they are not a tool. They shouldn't be. So our relationship with others is never with a singular, isolated I, or person, but is with those from whom one mostly does not distinguish oneself. The they. We are part of the they. We are among others similar to ourselves in our world. So the world is then always shared with others. Being in, for Heidegger, is to be with. The innerworldly being in itself of others is Dasein with. I mean, there, there's, my immediate thought is that this is kind of racist. <laughs> I mean, this just sets the stage for a possible racism in that it's like, oh, well, of course, I just associate with people of my own race. They're part of my world. Uh, that really came to my mind. Like, he's clear that being with has nothing to do with actual humans being, being around at all but only emerges when we meet them at work, in their existing, in our world, performing these operations. So, like, it's almost like he's providing a possibility to see people as not being human if they are not actually participating in that work, in that care, in that world, which is like, okay, why does he feel the need to qualify this when we meet them at work? Because my gut instinct would be like okay well we are always at work we are always at care caring in this world for him to make the qualification implies that therefore 
there can be people who do not do that kind of care, do not do that kind of work, and are therefore in our eyes, if we adopt this entire idea of worldliness and being in the world, they are then outside of that world. Scary thought. Scary thought for me. Scary thought in that it is a fancy philosophical justification for exclusion, in my mind. So this is different, though, from Hegel, in that meeting another is not about conscious and self-conscious, uh, or emerging self-consciousnesses. In short, at the beginning of the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel's like, yo, if you were just ch chilling out with rocks, you would never develop self-consciousness. You only develop self-consciousness because you are conscious, and you encounter another being who is conscious. And you see them looking at you, and then suddenly it's like, oh, I can look at myself now. That's, that's cool. And here self-consciousness happens. You can't get that with a rock, I assume. I mean, Tom Hanks did it in Castaway, but he had already had self-consciousness from his life. Whatever. The, the ball never developed self-consciousness, I assume. Anyway, so this is different from Hegel in that there's a kind of meeting to form this like self-consciousness. For Heidegger, it must acknowledge how this meeting happens in the surrounding world in the first place. How can you have these beings come in contact with one another unless there was a common world in which they actually uh, engaged one another, connected? So insofar as Dasein is the condition for all beings, or is all beings, it is never in isolation. Someone might feel alone in a crowd comprised of other Daseins, but this just means a detachment from the others. They are still in that world. So the being alone of Dasein, too, is being with in the world. You can never be outside of that world. So Dasein is always a being with. You are always connected to that world. So now we arrive at Heidegger's ethical consideration of being with others. I mean, you know, whether he's actually doing ethics here is up for debate. I kind of don't think so, but, you know, whatever. First, we must remember that one of Dasein's characteristics is is its propensity to take care, to do things, creating things, kind of bringing things for, things forward, bringing things into being. When confronted with others, we are therefore confronted with others, with other cares through other Daseins. But in the they, our, da, our kind of propensities for care are somewhat aligned. They are united. So here he introduces a new possibility, that is, concern. Concern is a disposition toward others or oneself in accounting for either, consciously or unconsciously, others' care. It's like being immediately mindful not only of my own care in the world, I use the hammer to do something to engage in the world, but like encountering others whose care might be different from my own. So for Heidegger, concern can, con can assume two extreme forms. It can insert someone into someone else's life, thereby taking away that person's capacity for care. This creates dependence and or domination. So I could be like to a child, something we often do with children is like, you don't know what you're doing. You're going to screw this up. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to take away your ability to actually exist in the world according to what makes sense to you. Or concern can take another form. It can try and optimize an other's capacity for care by fostering their existential potentiality of being. That is not to take away their ability to act in the world, but to encourage it, to direct it, to guide it. 
So there's a lot in between, but he doesn't really explore that here. And I think, like, I think a lot about Spinoza here, um, which I don't know if anyone's done this connection between Spinoza and Heidegger, but all Spinoza's shtick is to say that, like, what makes us human is our ability to act, to exist in the world and do things in the world. Anything that limits that ability is bad for us, essentially. We have to limit those things that limit us. I think that's the same here. I think that's what Heidegger's getting at here. So this is authentic care. Care that doesn't try to just be like, oh, you, you can't do this. I'm going to do it for you. Care that's like, let me show you how to do it. It's like a teaching because it teaches someone how to exist in that world. And it is fostered in settings where people are aligned in their devotion to the same thing. Again, it's like, ugh. It's a little racist. I don't know. Is it like a little culturally sensitive? I don't know. I don't know. Is this is this like a secretly like a template against multiculturalism? I don't know. I I can certainly see someone picking it up, and that's why that's why I think we have to be very like we have to be hypercritical of this stuff. Concern is guided here by tolerance and considerate considerateness, and when it goes awry. It becomes inconsiderateness or intolerance, which is bad. So, I mean, that sounds good, right? Right? Just be mindful that maybe it's, you know, could be read a little differently, but it seems clear enough to me that he's making the case for tolerance, for considerateness. So, it is in Dasein's nature to be with in a world. As he writes, the understanding of others already lies in the understanding of being of Dasein, because its being is being with. He continues, the relation of being to others then becomes a projection, pro projection, a projection of one's own being toward oneself into another. The other is a duplicate of the self. Because we all exist in the they, right? We are all part and parcel of the same thing here in our world. In a sense, this is only true if the two constructs are true, uh, or the two constructs. The two contacts, the two people, I won't edit that out. We're all the constructs, whatever. The two contacts are true to themselves in their Dasein. So something interesting has to be acknowledged here, though. Our Dasein is then not our own, right? Because we adapt it to a norm. It is, it, it, in its occupying the everyday of the surrounding world and others, or the they, the they, it is subject to customs, laws, principles that limit it. So in being with others, Dasein stands in for subservience to others. It itself is not. The others have taken it itself is not. The others have taken its being away from it, which is what we must do. Remember, Dasein is only our own, but we have to get rid of it somewhat. Part of that individual identity when we adopt the they, when we become part of a world. This who who has taken over Dasein, is the neuter, the they. We do as they do to be part of the averageness of the everyday. So he writes, The care of averageness reveals, in turn, an essential tendency of Dasein, which we call the leveling down of all possibilities of being. When we are first cast into this world, the world's our oyster, in terms of Dasein. We can do anything, but we do not. We have to then follow rules. We have to adapt to the customs of our world. The self of everyday Dasein is the they self. 
which is contrasted with the authentic self. So this is the inauthentic Dasein, which again, not this isn't a bad thing. He's not criticizing it. Maybe he'd be like, we have to try to find a, this is like Freud, right? Like society's always going to repress. Maybe we can try to find some room to allow individuals to express themselves in their, their drives and desires. Maybe there's a way to allow the Dasein to flourish as much as possible. But in any case, like he's not being critical of it. So Dasein is then found in everydayness that is invested into real objects and people. However, it is also found in those demonstrations of authenticity that is not an exceptional detachment, but is an existential modification of the they as an essential existential. And so Dasein never gets away from being with. When there's a great work of art made, that great work of art is always contextualized within a certain world. It has to have some resonance with it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be great. To be great means that people can understand it or they can like have some kind of attachment to it. If aliens from another planet, Martians, were to come with all of their greatest works of art, we'd be like, what the hell? We might not have any idea what that is, right? It's only until they tell us that it's for them it's a great work of art, we might be like, okay, uh, I don't get it, but... You know, so in that, even in like these ultimate expressions of individual creative capacity, like in making a great work of art, what happens there is not a total departure from the they, but in a, in a case, it's like a modification of it, a reflection of it into a new possibility it moves us all here. So even if someone asked, how do we understand great people, then we can answer with, their greatness is only possible in the eyes of others who recognize and acknowledge it. At least that's how I would understand it. How we can be both the part of the they and this individual self. And yeah, a little longer episode this time. I've had to... <laughs> this book is like... God, is it long. All right, well, I'm going to wrap that up there. Next time I'll take over uh, with chapter 5 and then chapter 6. That'll be episode five, and we'll go on from there. If there's anything I got wrong, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. And uh, yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might love it, might hate it. You can either do it to punish them or, you know, you want to bring joy to their lives. I don't know. Knowledge? Anyways, take care, everyone. You know what care means now, so you can better do it. Peace.